Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hi there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. another episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and I am joined, as always, by my co-hostess with the mostest, the impeccable researcher, the one and only Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? Um, I am doing about as well as a woman uh, can do when her brain has been drowning for the last week in sea shanties. <laughs> Have you been watching the, the, the sea shanty phenomenon online? Yes. And I want to quickly point out, I know that by the time this has aired, yeah. sea shanties will be a long thing in the past. So people here hearing this now, especially the, uh, the younger audience, and they're going to be like, oh my God, that's so five minutes ago. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think mm-hmm. any of them are that snotty. But they're just, it's going to be like, oh my God, okay, grandma. But no, I, it's, we're, we're, I think we're just past it now or we're just getting out of it. But in our present time, it's relevant and it's sure. everywhere. And well, for I those who stop. maybe don't know, there has been a, now TikTok, what a phenomenon. I think it started there is, is yeah. there's been people singing old timey sea shanties and then basically like someone will sing a part and then someone will duet it and add their own you know add like the you know tenor part or the bass part and anyway and then they've got these beautifully harmonized wonderful sea shanties and it it feels so random that it feels like it makes sense to me yeah i mean yeah. i saw a comment that was like oh do you find sea shanties weird the fact that they're singing these songs, people who are like struggling and in captivity and like trying to do something to stop themselves from losing their minds are doing a song that 
were created by people who were forced into small captivity doing something to not lose their minds. And it's like, oh, that makes sense then. I never yeah. thought of it that way, but that does make a lot of sense. Yeah. I don't know where wow. it started, but the gentleman that I saw for the first time, I posted, I think I retweeted it or something on Twitter, and that was my first time seeing it. And I was like, oh, this is lovely. And then my husband was like, oh, yeah, by the way, they're everywhere. And I was like, what do you mean? And a week later, we'll wake up and every day in the last week and each of us are just like, how are you today? And the other one's like, no, it's still there. It's still there. <laughs> it won't leave your soul. It's yeah. still, it's in there. It's in yeah. there. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it, it penetrates into your brain. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Well, I also feel uh, criminally insane. And the reason is, is that I have inexplicably done a very high ponytail for those who are listening and not seeing this very so high. I can like feel it like in the back oh. of my head. And then I, <laughs> I just started putting on makeup and I, I've made myself look like an old Maddie Ziegler. <laughs> like with, if I just threw on a little bit of glitter, I would definitely look like a dance child. You know what I mean? Like, it, I don't know what I, I've taken it down now. Like I, I logged on with Christy and I was like, I got to kiss off most of this lipstick. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anymore. Also, my laptop just died. So I'm, we're going rogue. I think I'm just going to have to read any notes off my phone. It's a, it's a crazy night. It's a crazy night already. This is what happens in dry January for old Ash. It's a nightmare. Yeah. It's a goddamn nightmare. <laughs> Look, I want to say this. One, you're gorgeous. Oh, bless it. Two, don't think I didn't notice that that scrunchie perfectly matched your shirt. (laughs) Because I noticed. I noticed these things. Listen, I try, okay? I try. Uh, And yes, we are also, of course, wearing these brand new True Crew buttons. How cute are these? Uh, I was also saying to Christy, I've got a small bag of these, and I was like, oh, it looks like some of these are brighter pink writing than other ones. And then I put two of them next to each other, and nope, it's exactly the same shade. (laughs) My eyes have just betrayed me. I don't know if my body's, like, working out alcohol. I don't know if if I'm, I don't know. I don't know what this is, but it's, uh, I'm here. I'm just riding it. I'm just riding the true mania that I'm currently living, so. Well, to quote you from... An earlier episode. I think we're going to get a real cool 90 minutes out of you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, frenetic would be uh, how I would best describe myself at the moment. And listen, everybody's in for a treat, I think. So listen, this is, of course, we're talking about Murder on Middle Beach episodes three and four. This is, of course, the second of the two-part special that we're doing on True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition, talking about the HBO documentary series, Murder on Middle Beach. And if you didn't listen to last week's episode of True Crime and Cocktails, maybe pause now and go back and listen to it, because I think that it'll make more sense if you listen to the last one first. But when we were, at the beginning of that episode, we were talking about how at Christie's wedding, we had recreated this childhood photo of ourselves. Yes. Ourselves. And that we had forced a professional photographer <laughs> to photograph us uh, sharing a piece of lip uh, lipstick. Wow. Licorice. Again, haven't drank a drop. Sharing a piece of licorice between our mouths, uh, which was recreating a picture of us. And then, Christy, you were saying that you were looking for that photo because, of course, she's going to yeah. post all of these things on uh, all of our social media handles. And you said that you <laughs> came across some other things that maybe played into that whole narrative. 
Yeah, I mean, I found the photos, I, which was a great uh, throwback to look through my sure. wedding album. And one of the photos that came up was the two of us dancing together, which again was a photo we forced the professional photographer to recreate for us. Didn't understand it. She didn't have to because it was the original photo was like 1987, 88. I believe it was 89 because I think I was six. I trust your memory more than I trust I think it mine. was 89. It was either, it was between 87 and 89. It was somewhere. No, you'll love this. I remember my hair. <laughs> when I was Amazing. four, which would yeah. have been 87, I had a very, I had like a page boy. But when sure. at, at that wedding, I had bangs and then it was a longer, I had a perm. They permed my hair. Sure. It didn't really take either. It turned into a weird loose wave. And people mm-hmm. kept asking me at that wedding. I remember even, I remember to this day, I was again, six or seven, five or six. I think six. This isn't the story. This isn't it. Anyway, <laughs> people kept asking me, is your hair yeah. natural? And I kept saying yes. And that was not true. It was a perm. Yeah. And then I told I mean, my mom, and then my mom was like, no, that's a lie. And I was like, oh, I, I just got the terminology mixed up. I felt very guilty. I remember. And then Love at that, that you felt guilty about that. I was an old woman when I was six. We all know this. And, and then at that wedding, that was when I put my arm down and a, a bee was in my armpit and stung me. Yeah. Again, elderly, elderly I as a child. Don't recall that at all. I mean, yeah. I do recall the dress that I wore to the wedding was the dress that I wore to my kindergarten graduation. Which I believe was 1987. Ah. Which is why, so I assume, I mean, I was a very, very thin child. Mm. <laughs> so I could have worn that dress for years. So it yeah. could have been at any point, but I was leaning like 88, 89, but goddamn damn Are that you be. sure that you didn't wear it to the graduation after? I don't know. I mean, I look I look tall mm. for like a kindergarten grad, I guess. <laughs> I, I also know nothing about child ages, child heights. I, yeah. I'm always like, I don't know, 10? I have no idea. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean. Okay, fair enough. Because I also was on the younger side because I have a November birthday, so I start school a lot later than everybody else. And uh, so I was always like younger than most of the people in my class. So I would have been on the slightly shorter side. So I think, oh God, I mean, again, this is not the story, but. This isn't the story. (laughs) Anyway, so long story short, we started, the two of us as little children, we started like slow dancing together, like in traditional, like hand on shoulder, us grasping other hands. And the crowd went wild. I mean, everybody took pictures of it. They thought it was adorable. These pictures were, these are like, I feel like every member of our family had one of these pictures up in their home, I feel like, framed. And so, of course, come Christie's wedding, what's another photo we need to recreate? (laughs) It's that photo. But keep in mind what this photographer must have thought. These two yahoos, like also like the bride, where's the husband? Who knows? It's, it's her and her maid of honor. 
going, hey, now take a picture of us sharing licorice. Now take a picture of us romantically dancing. Like, she must have just been like, who knows, you know? She did take, a like, a very long photo shoot of the two of us. It was like, here's a she photo did. of, like, the entire wedding party. And, like, here's a photo shoot with me and my new husband. And then here's a photo shoot, me and Lauren. Just <laughs> There's picture like so many pictures of just the two of us because she was like, I'm going to want this. And it's like, yeah, you're going to want to get that. Yeah. And I mean, listen, she she earned every penny. You know what I mean? She was worth yeah. every penny. Yeah. Um, the other thing I do have to mention, again, I have so many vivid memories from childhood. It's wild. And the other one that I remember from that wedding was at before you and I danced together, I was dancing with our grandfather and standing this on is his a, toes yeah okay and this is actually heartbreaking and i remember in that moment being so happy like for whatever reason i was just like this is awesome like i was so happy and then someone from the other side of the family that we didn't know a woman that i had literally never met before came and ripped me away from him and started trying to make me like fast dance with her. I'll never forget it for as long as I live. I remember what her dress looked like. I remember what her face looked like. I remember every moment of it. Because I remember in the moment just being like, you just ruined something that was really nice for me. <laughs> Again, I was 85 when I was six. <laughs> but the point is, that wedding, there was a lot of action at that wedding. <laughs> yeah, I mean... What you were doing there when you were dancing, and I'm pretty sure I have a, a photo of you dancing with him. What you were doing was making yourself a core memory, if Inside Out has taught me anything. And what that bitch yes. did is she came in and cracked that sucker before it was even done. She did. She so did. So that was, like, mm -hmm. also, it's it's of no place. Like, it's not your place. Back off. No. You know? Also, she didn't know me. I didn't know her. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Don't touch me. Well, she saw what a good time you were having and was like, oh, I miss having a good time. I've never had one, obviously, because I'm a killer of joy. I'm going to go dance with her. You're right. She was yeah. doing it for her damn self. You're of right. course she was. Now, you're going to love this left-hand turn. Very yeah. quickly, before we get into, uh, of course, the rest of Murder on Middle Beach, <laughs> I was saying to Christy, right before we started recording, I was like, we were talking about talking about this wedding. And then I was like, is there any other stories that we have that connect to this? And then I mentioned a name and I will not say the name and you'll understand why in a minute. But I mentioned the name of a family member that we share. And Christy thought that it was someone else. And we've come to realize within the last 20 minutes of our lives <laughs> that Christy had been under the impression that yeah. when I spoke of this one person, she thought I was speaking about another one of our cousins, you know, in the grand, yeah. big kind of scene. So we have a cousin. <laughs> this isn't funny at all. But because I was thinking about, like, what connects to this? Well, what connects to murder on Middle Beach? Oh, and all the family trying to, to kill somebody, potentially, or all having motive or whatever. There is someone who is distantly related to us who was an adult who was living with their elderly parent. And one day, that elderly parent was eating a meal prepared by her son and found all of her pills 
crushed into the food, <laughs> but not crushed enough. <laughs> oh, no. It was a murder attempt. <laughs> but I guess how it went was she literally was like, are you trying to kill me? And I guess it was like, yeah. And it was like, well, you didn't do a very good job. And then they just kept their lives going. <laughs> oh. oh, my God. <laughs> have you ever heard that story before? I have not. I miss when the stories of our relatives were like, wouldn't it be neat if we were related to Dan Aykroyd? <laughs> Oh, how the mighty do fall. Yeah. That's yeah. insane. Yeah. I should also mention, it is a, you know, it's not a close relative of, of any sort. Yeah. Um, and and obviously we were also getting this secondhand, so I, I don't know. But yeah, I was like, wow, I guess we do have a story that rela- relates to a family member <laughs> trying to kill another family member. How dark. How dark. I, yeah. 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 But anyway, I mean, the, the the weirdest part of all of it is, is that they lived together for years after that. And nev- and it never, he never tried again. Well, that From we what know I know. Of. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine, though? Can you imagine, be- can you imagine how disappointed you would have to be in your kid if they couldn't even kill you right? <laughs> like, it's like, you idiot. I can see it. <laughs> In my scrambled <laughs> eggs. Come on, man. Take it back. Do it again. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. There's... This is the moment in Dateline where it would be like, it would show the photo of us adorably dancing together at the wedding, and then it would suddenly go to like <laughs> x-ray black with like the little bit of green, and then it would be like, what they didn't know... <laughs> Like hidden deep within the family or something like it would be, it would be like, oh, look, family, always a good time. Or is it? And then it was just like the streaks of blood would run down the photo. It would be. (laughs) Or however. Dancing with death. Yeah, exactly. I like that so much. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Call Keith Morrison. We've got a case. <laughs> yeah. What a joke. I don't even think that we were close enough that they would have been at that wedding. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, they were sure. fairly removed from, from us. I think I only met them a few times growing up. But anyway, long story short, I, I yeah, what a joke. And then when I was saying this to Christy before we started, I was like, do you know? And she was like, no. And I was like, hit record. This will be a fun <laughs> reveal. <laughs> An attempted murder in our bloodline. Like, you know, come on. That's just, how do you even, I mean, I think if I saw, like, it doesn't matter who I'm living with, if they put my food in front of me and I look at it and I'm like, why are half of my pills like mangled in this thing? Are you trying to kill me? And the answer of yes, I would be like, I don't think we should live together anymore. You know? Yeah. I would say that that is probably a time to have, if nothing else, a roommate meeting. (laughs) I think you're a little relaxed about being a roommate if you're, if you're just like you see a pill and you're like ah I'm calling a meeting <laughs> I think there needs to be a little more than a meeting well maybe, yeah maybe like a 
kick out situation. I just, what I love is that she obviously knew that he was such a fuck up that he would never pull it off. Because she didn't, she didn't, she didn't back, like she didn't get scared. The way the story was relayed to me was that she was basically just like rolling her eyes like, nice try, buddy. (laughs) Like, you'll never do it. Do you think that like every morning that she woke up, she would open her eyes and like yell across the hall to him? Guess it didn't work, you know? Like, still tr- here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you tried, it was a failure, like my son. Yeah. You know, like, I feel like that had to be a situation that was happening. If well, not, I- that's how we're going to recreate it on Lifetime. Yeah. <gasps> oh, this is a movie that's dying to be written. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Mm hmm. When the two city slickers go back to their hometown for a family wedding and, uh uh-oh, murder afoot. Can it involve some sort of photo album that a photo falls out from the back that we're like, what's this? And the parent is like, oh, it's nothing. And they try and hide it. And we're like, who is this person? That's me with them. Who is that? I don't remember this person. And they're like, oh, that's nothing. And then it's It's like. It's nobody. Yeah. Yep. Fuck, this writes itself. It does. I mean, I don't know how many of these we've written on this. <laughs> we've but written a few. We've I, a few. I would like True Crime and Cocktails. Presents. Productions? Yes. Yes. Listen. Yeah. Sky's the limit, baby. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> All right. So let's get into it. Of course, last week we talked about Murder on Middle Beach episodes one and two. And this week we are talking about Murder on Middle Beach episodes three and four. So just to get you back up to speed. Previously on True Crime and Cocktails. I was just really excited that to say was that. so good. <laughs> it, right? I, I'm not kidding. It is my favorite thing about shows. Like especially because it's always the dramas that go in like hard like that and I oh, yeah. live for it so I was like when I was writing the notes I was like screw using the word synopsis <laughs> I'm like I need a previously on because yes it's the best absolutely yeah well listen I don't want to take it from you did you want to do one no no you oh, go okay. for it all right previously on true crime and cocktails after a messy divorce, Jeffrey Hamburg and Barbara Beach Hamburg were set to meet. I love that then I was trying to continue the bit. That it, you know cuz how they how they do that then they start listing the things really quick. I you you try yeah you ran at it, you hit it and then it you were like I'm going to keep going with this level of energy and I'm and like it, oof it's it's like the I don't it's I don't hard. Know. I'm going to I don't know if she's going to want to do I'm that. I'm going to rewind. Yeah. I'm going to retreat on yeah, it. I'm going to yeah. retreat on that bit. But I am going to say... Give, your, give yourself one more. I'm going to give... Exactly. I'm going to give a give, third give run at this, though. One more. Yeah. Previously on True Crime and Cocktails. After a messy divorce, Jeffrey Hamburg and Barbara Beach Hamburg were set to meet in court over unpaid child support and alimony on March 3rd, 2010. However, Barbara didn't show up in court and was found brutally murdered on the front lawn of her home later that morning. Despite having numerous potential suspects, the local police have yet to arrest anyone as the DNA kits used to gather evidence were found to be faulty. Anxious for answers, Barbara and Jeff's son Madison started a documentary looking into both the crime and what Barbara was really like. During his own investigation, Madison found out that his mother was a part of a pyramid scheme known as the Gifting Tables and that his father had drained the money from his own children's trust accounts. Oh, my goodness. 
All right. So where are we? Where did we leave off? Where are we starting up? I turn it over to you, dear Christy. First of all, one thing, Madison, who is the director of this entire uh, documentary, I found out he accumulated a thousand hours of footage over 200 days of shooting. Wow. So that's a lot. Like there's, it's, I can't, I just want to see so much of the stuff that didn't make it. Yeah. I want that thousand hours and I'm not even kidding. I just, just, just let me see the tapes, Madison. Release the tapes. Release the tapes. Release the tapes. One thing that was an update in this episode from the last ones uh, involving the gifting tables, I found some documents from the gifting table court battles. Oh. Uh, Madison's aunt Jill, I guess his great aunt, um, who had been arrested for being part of the gifting tables in 2009, she said the only reason she did the gifting tables is because they needed the money. In 2009, according to the IRS, her income was listed as $150,000, and that does not include any amount she received from the gifting tables. So she wasn't hurting for money. I don't believe she was. <laughs> One of the other Jeez. women as part of this gifting tables who was arrested was Donna. And yes. in August of 2009, Donna had emailed somebody and said, I'm a woman who has been through dessert 10 times. I personally do not want to see this brilliant vehicle stop because protocol isn't followed. She then emailed somebody else and was like, there's no reason we can't make 80,000 beans a year in the sunshine state. So Donna goes down to Florida. Her sister and mother, I believe, are there. They're all part of it. I can't, for the life of me, find anything of what happened in Florida. But a third woman who was arrested as part of these called uh, Betty Jane... Uh, she emailed in October of that year, Donna, you need to find your happy and healthy face. Are you worried this will blow up like it did in Naples? We need to keep silent and under the radar. So I don't know what happened in Naples, but apparently one of the tables decided they no longer wanted to follow the guidelines and it was detected by the Florida law enforcement. So they got shut down pretty darn quick. I don't know much more of what happened. I wish that I did. But I love that they tried to take it somewhere else. Yeah. And it just crashed and burned. So they went back. So I felt like in the first two episodes, when they were talking about the gifting tables, they were like, you know what? It was really Barbara's death that was like the catalyst to this whole thing. And it's like, oh, they were, the state was on to them before she died them getting that evidence really just helped them a lot. So if it ends up that it was somebody from the gifting tables who murdered Barbara, that, that you fucked yourself, essentially. Right. Because you're what leaked all that information. Right. Two other quick pieces of information that I found out that I'm going to talk about just because I'm proud that I found them because it was a like a real deep search, but they're yes. not re they're not relevant. But I was excited because I was like, these are things that didn't come up at all. So the victim, Barbara, was murdered in March of 2010. In June of 2010, 
her sister died. The one sister that doesn't appear in the documentary, that they mention repeatedly and show in photos and just never interview her, she died in 2010 at the how age of she, 53. Oh, how did she die? I don't know, but accor- according to Conway's journal entries that they showed on the show that I took screenshots of and then zoomed in to read it on my own, yeah, she said she lost a sister to alcoholism. Her mother had said that all three of her daughters suffered from alcoholism, so I'm assuming it's something to do with that, because she was only 53, but there was nothing in her obituary that I could find that comments about specifically how she died. Interesting. Another person linked to this family that died. What? October 2011. A man by the name of Jimmy Beneshek died at the age of 58. Who's Jimmy, you're saying? I've never heard that name before. He's Conway's ex-husband. Stop! They they did reference in the episode that she had a son. Yes. Never referenced anything about who the father was. Well, apparently they were together they were married they had this child and then at some point it fell apart and they divorced and he married somebody else and had another two or three kids with this woman really yeah well did it say why how he died it did not interesting okay i'm not suggesting that conway did anything i am in that (laughs) (laughs) in that case We'll get to what I think she's done in this case. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So let's talk Conway. Yes, please. So of the Beach children, Barbara was, Beach was her maiden name. The Beach children, there were six of them. There was Chris, Kathy, Lou, Conway, Barb, Richard. There was only seven and a half years between all of the children. Wow. Which is a lot. Yeah. The family says that Conway and Barbara were the closest. Quick aside, I don't know if we mentioned this in the other one, but their mother was named Barbara. Her mother was named Barbara. And this woman named Barbara was like, you know what? I'm going to name my own daughter Barbara, but I'm going to wait till my third daughter. You know? So I just can't help but be like, that's got to cause a little animosity amongst the family doesn't it that it's like she waited until she had three daughters to be like okay i'll carry on the family tradition now i think we did mention that in the last one and it still also is weird to me now i think it's important to bring it up again because also it did feel like when they were talking about things it did feel in general like barbara was kind of i'm speaking of the child barbara the woman the victim who's died It did feel like she was kind of the favorite, didn't it? It kind of felt like the way that they were talking about her, that everyone was talking about her. So it's interesting to me that it's almost as though her mom picked her favorite, like, unknowingly, if that makes sense. Or whether, or maybe it was like, you know, the third daughter is born, she names, she carries on the namesake, she names her Barbara, and then for that reason she became the favorite. Who knows? But it definitely felt to me very interesting that she didn't just do her firstborn, which is tradition, which is One how that say. usually goes. If yeah. You're, yeah. Yeah. I found that weird, but also just thought, 
maybe that would cause some things. And you'd grow up well, a little... I mean, kids are kids are weird. If you treat one child differently than the others, they feel it. A hundred percent they feel it. I carry to this day a stranger taking me away from my grandfather at a wedding. <laughs> so yeah, children hold on to things. <laughs> I really hope no one's stepping into the podcast at this point because that <laughs> story sounds like it has a different ending. <laughs> It does. My but bad. Still, but still relevant to uh, true crime. Thank you very much. Okay, yes. Yeah, so Conway, yeah. yeah. Conway, from the beginning, is when I first saw her on this thing, I didn't yeah. trust her at all. I got a vibe. No. What about you? The fact that most of the interviews he does with her, she slurs through them. I know. Uh, there was a point, and this is not even on this page of notes. I think this is on another page. There is a point where he interviews, or he's not interviewing her, he's on the phone with her, and he's recording himself, and you can hear the phone call happening, and she just is really quiet, and then she's like, Maddie, don't fucking ignore me. Like, in a real, like, a very slurring, very like, oh boy. Yeah. It's like, I, yeah, I, I mean, she kind of took over as caregiver, for these kids when their mother died. I mean, they were 16 and 18 at the time. The 18-year-old was away at college, so I don't know how much. He didn't need, like, day-to-day caregiving. He was kind of on his own or whatever. But she kind of stepped in to take care of them, which I find shocking because they had a parent. Their father was there. He just didn't really uh, step up, I guess. Yeah. Um, one of the brothers said that Conway is fragile and the most high maintenance. Conway's comment was, they were all smarter than me. I was the person they made fun of. So again, if you're going into this where it's like your younger sister was the one that got the name Barb and is favored, you feel like everybody's picking on you and it's just you see yourself as the victim. Yeah, I'm not surprised that alcoholism is what happened because this kind of shit is going to cause demons that are going to be screaming so loud you're going to drown them out somehow well i mean listen and and i i just want to quickly hit on again because this was the part of the the documentary i think that was the wildest of all and i know that's it's hard to choose but the revelation that conway was going through quote a tough time in the in the past and Barb at that time took in Conway's son yeah. to help raise him because Conway was, I think, for lack of a better term, dealing a drunk, dealing with alcoholism. Yeah, I shouldn't say a drunk. That's that's insensitive. But I feel like this is also like she toes a line for me. Like it's like there's a certain amount of it that I'm like, yes, alcoholism, I believe, is a disease. It's a it's very sad. All of the above. But then what I'm about to say kind of makes me feel like it's like. But wait a minute. <laughs> this isn't just alcoholism. Um, yeah. Because that's when she she admitted that she had hired a hitman to kill Barb, Barb's husband, and the two kids, Madison and Allie. Yeah. A few things here. A few <laughs> things here. So again, that's why it kind of yeah. deviates just from alcoholism for me into like, you've got yeah. something else going on, lady, because that's not typical behavior, um, no. obviously. Um, but but for me, it's like, it, it's a, it, clearly, yes, she was clearly overly sensitive to her brother's point and also yeah. vindictive, jealous, all of the above, that she couldn't see that it was like, your sister is trying to help you. She's not trying to take your son away from you. She's trying to help you because you're 
you're, you know, having a hard time. Yeah. But the part of it that was the wildest and most chilling was that then she tells Madison, so she's essentially just told Madison, I hired a hitman to kill you and your whole family. Yeah. And I was going to go through with it, but then I got robbed, so I couldn't pay him, so I didn't. There was no sort of like, she never, and I, listen, maybe he didn't include a moment where she showed remorse or like, thank God I didn't go through with it or something. But it just really felt to me, that's when it struck me that I was like, she's a suspect in this. She's got to be. Oh, yeah. I mean, in 96, her, Conway's son, Tyler, was 12 years old and Barb took Conway to court to get custody of her son. Again, I don't know where the father was at this point. Uh, from what I can tell, off living with another family. Oh, He'd already wow. made his own family. He already had other kids by this point um, that were quite young. So I have a feeling that it was just like, yep, he's good. So Conway, I, I guess the judge w- gave in and Tyler went and lived with Barbara and the Hamburgs. And that's, I mean, I guess, thank God that somebody stepped in. But uh, Barbara called her siblings to try and do an intervention uh, for Conway. And all of the siblings, except for the oldest, said, let her die. Wow! So that, to me, means there was a lot more between them, something going on that they never really brought up. So Conway admits she was sleeping on park benches. She was angry. She said she snapped. Um, Her family had stopped speaking to her. Her son was living with someone else. She blamed Barbara for everything. So she wanted to get revenge and apparently get a hitman. But of course, she's a, a woman who's usually drunk, wandering around, sleeping on park benches. What does she know? about hiring a hitman. So she would just drunkenly ask strangers, are you a hitman? How do I talk to a hitman? She said she asked cabbies about it. Like she ended up finding somebody who was like, yeah, yeah, I'll kill them. And she's like, great. She had a few drinks with them. And next thing she knows, she wakes up in her hotel room naked and her money is gone. And she just kind of like, it. I, again, they're, as you said, there could be a scene that was cut that would have made it a little better towards her. But it just came across as like a, nah, so I didn't have the money to try again. It really did. It really did. And it was interesting to me that he, he as a filmmaker, left it that way. Because for the rest of the documentary, I was very uneasy about her. Like, I was like, like, I never really felt like she was let off the hook. And and that's kind of one of the criticisms. I mean, I loved the documentary and I don't really have a lot of criticisms. But one that I do have is, and I think I mentioned this to you via text at some point, was why did she all of a sudden stop becoming a suspect for him? Because somewhere in between episode three and four, it just, she just kind of like faded out of the focus. Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute, why aren't we still on Conway? Like, there's there's no proof like and now listen maybe you have some more insights into her actual alibi at the time of death and all of those things but as far as i can tell there was no sort of like giant smoking gun oh she couldn't possibly have done it moment in there right nope (laughs) uh i feel like he did it specifically as the filmmaker with the idea of i'm gonna make 
the, take these suspects that you're like, oh, it couldn't be them. And I'll be like, oh, look, but it could be. And then he just lets it hang there for the longest time. Uh, because one of, I mean, I guess to be fair, after she admits I hired a hitman to try and kill you, uh, she does tell him, I hope that you can process all of this and still love me as I will always love you. Not exactly a, I'm sorry, but I guess, but another person that, uh, in the documentary that they're like, oof, could it be them? And then he drags it out before he's like, I guess not would be Madison's sister, Allie. Right. So, Allie, uh, in 2006, when she was in the seventh grade, she went to a school nurse because she wasn't feeling well. It ended up that she had some sort of a thyroid problem and she ended up in the hospital for six weeks. So, according to her father, Jeff, Allie was diagnosed with Graves' disease which is an immune system disorder that causes the overproduction of thyroid hormones. It's more common in women and people under the age of 40. So also according to Jeff, while she was in the hospital, Allie was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. It's a mental health disorder that impacts the way you think and feel about yourself and others. It can involve intense anger, impulsiveness, frequent mood swings, give someone an intense fear of abandonment, even going to extreme measures to avoid real or imagined separation or rejection of any kind. Oh, I know I mean, lots about BPD, baby. That fits right into my MO. Yeah. Different sort sure. of di mental disorders. You know I love this. I know. Uh, the only thing I will add from my own little encyclopedia up here is, is that uh, often people with borderline, it's often women, and it's often women who were uh, uh, unfortunately abused as children in some way. So mm -hmm. I offer that only because I feel like that is relevant to everything that we're talking about, that, that, that yeah. it is not uncommon for girls who are abused in any way, physically, sexually, mentally, all of the above, to develop borderline. Well, I'm going to say I'm not surprised because Jeff had repeatedly said that uh, Barbara was not very nice to Allie. He claims that, uh, that Barbara pushed Allie down the stairs, slapped her, was verbally abusive. Neither Allie nor Madison backed up any of those claims. These seem like they're things that Jeff said. But did they ever come out and say, opposite, say the opposite? They also did not. See, that's weird to me. Yeah. Well, I think, honestly, a lot of it was done on purpose to make us be like, well, so what's the real thing about this family? Right. I don't know if he was hoping it would go longer. I don't know if he knew it was going to be four episodes when he did it. We only sure. assume that there's going to be more to come. When Allie left the hospital, she went to live with Jeff. However... She said he implanted a lot of fear in her. He was controlling. At one point, he removed the door from her bedroom, which feels like, I, I get it. We once took the door off of our teenager's door, our, off our teenager's bedroom because he, he slammed the door. And we were like, don't slam the door. We don't like it. He would storm off in a huff and slam the door. So we're like, 
we swear to God one more time. And he did. So we were like, well, we got to follow through. And we took the door off and he was so angry. We put it back on like a day later. But the point is, I feel when you're in a home and there's only two people and it's a man and his daughter and a teenage daughter, let her have a door. Oh, yeah. You know, like it's yes. weird. I get I was going to say I'm not suggesting anything. I guess I maybe am. But just let her have a door because that's disturbing. Well, it's interesting, too, because it was throughout the documentary, even before we got to kind of this part of it. A lot of people described Jeff as like insanely controlling. Like that was a yeah. way that he was described by multiple people multiple times in multiple different ways. So it is interesting to me, A, that she chose to go and live with him, right? Yeah. Well, so he told her that Barbara wanted to put her in a psychiatric hospital. Interesting. So I wonder if he told her that and she was like, oh God, I would hate that. I'll go live with him because it's more freedom. Well, and then she found out the hard way that it probably wasn't. Wow. Not yeah. that it's, you know, mental institution or hospital is a different story but wow okay so it's also important to remember too that this girl is basically having a mental breakdown in seventh grade yeah so to me that tells me here we go I'll put on my little oh I love it I'll put on my little psychologist cap even though Mm -hmm. I am absolutely in no way trained or uh you know I should not be giving any of the advice Mm -hmm. I'm about to or uh thoughts that I'm about to but you know I've I've already stated that I don't have a degree so I think it's fine um To me, if a child who is probably, what's that, 12, 13, seventh grade, if a child at that age is having this kind of like mental breakdown and, and, and is legitimately diagnosed, and if that diagnosis is true, like that has got to be a proof that something has been going on in that home. Whether it's true or false that Barb has pushed her down the stairs, who knows to what level of, of abuse Jeff was, if it was just controlling or if it was something else, who knows? But kids don't just have mental breakdowns at the age of 12 or 13. Yeah. I would say traditionally, unless there has been a huge stress stressor at home. Yeah. Agreed. So I, I feel like that's, I guess for me, it's it's like what I, what I, my question for Madison is this. If your mother didn't push Allie down the stairs and she's now passed, and you, you seem to really love her. Wouldn't you want to clarify so that someone isn't speaking ill of your dead mother? And then on the flip side, if she did push Allie down the stairs, you're you're airing all of this dirty laundry anyway. Like, how is that not, like, why is that the thing to keep a secret? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. those details, like, that's weird to me. There are a lot of things that he just doesn't go into. He maybe went into at some point, but it got cut at some point but I just feel like there were a lot of things he purposely didn't do like he Mm. he did not he kind of shone a light on all of his family's like dirty secrets and all of their problems and everybody's issues and then he went in and had a a police interview and the cops were like so you you look well you're doing better and he was like yep and then it came up i think once that it was like yeah after my mother died i uh had some drug problems hit rock bottom went to rehab well what he doesn't say 
is while she was alive, he went to rehab when he was 15. No way. He doesn't go into his own dirty secrets and dirty laundry, as it were. He'll air everybody else's, but he just doesn't really go over. He just glazes over his. That's interesting. Now, listen, mm-hmm. alcoholism definitely runs in the family. They got into the fact that yes. um, it was definitely in that bloodline. So I could see him potentially having problems with substances. That could also arguably maybe Allie would have some sort of, you know, addiction type issues as well. Though borderline, if it is true borderline, if she really, really was borderline, that's 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 not something you're born with. So that's a different story altogether. But that is interesting. You're right that it's like... I guess for me, and I know that we're going off track for a second here, but go with me for a second. Yeah. And I know we kind of touched on this briefly in the last episode, but what was his goal with this thing? Is it legitimately to find his mother's killer? Is it to take advantage of the fact that he's got this crazy story and that this can really get him on the map? I mean, I, that's very crass of me to say, and I don't want to believe that that's true, but it's just bizarre to me the things that he chose to keep, the things that he chose to omit the secrets that he chose mm-hmm. to keep. And then you could get really meta about it and be like, well, you know, like me keeping those secrets was a metaphor for the secrets that my family kept my entire life. Whatever. The point is, <laughs> you know, sure. in a good documentary, it's like we need all the we need all the facts. And I feel like, you know, I feel like there is stuff missing. And you're right, it is interesting because the one thing that you and I talked about, not I believe not on the episode last week, was that when he first went into the police station, we may have talked about this, um, they kind of were making it seem like he was the one yeah. who had done the murder. And yeah. you had said, like, you're like, well, he he was kind of, like, battling this drug problem. Like, it was probably easy to pin it on, like, did he kill his mother in some sort of drug-fueled rage? Also, apparently right. his cell phone wasn't on at the time that she was killed. You right. know, so where was he at that time? Like, you know, it's it's just, it, I mean, listen, again, that's why we're talking about it on the show, because it's fascinating. It's a mystery wrapped in an enigma. So, okay, so where are we? All right, so Allie, she has this whole experience when she's 12. Yes. What happens next? In 2006, when she's out of the hospital, she goes and moves in with her dad. 2008, she moves back in with her mom. Then, like two months later, Barbara and Allie and Madison move to 44 Middle Beach Road. In the spring of 2009, so we're looking at like six to eight months later, Conway moves in with them because she's recovering from brain surgery. Oh, wow. Now, Conway, while battling alcoholism, she also battled breast cancer, and then she had some sort of tumor of some sort because then she had to have brain surgery. She moved in with them so that Barbara could take care of her. Which is amazing and kind of more leans towards how everybody else talked about Barbara, about like she was just such a pure good soul. She had her own demons that she battled and whatever, but she was an overall good person. Conway said while living with Allie that Allie abused drugs, alcohol, and boys all the time and did not want Conway around. Then we get to Conway's journal entries 
Conway said, when Allie says she thinks it will ruin our relationship if we continue to live together, that is a big red flag that her intentions are to party most of the summer. Because I'm in recovery, she knows I won't appreciate that. Interesting. So, yeah. So then Conway takes this little dispute she's having with Allie a little further and says to Madison, I think your sister had something to do with your mother's murder. I'm sorry. Which again is wild. And I will say, you know, there was that moment in the documentary where he kind of said to Allie, you know, Conway's pointing the finger at you. And Allie seemed unaffected. Mm -hmm. She was kind of emotionless, which I thought was interesting. I, you know, if it were me (laughs) and someone said that to me, I would be like shocked, upset, mad, angry, all of the above. She definitely did not really show any emotion. Uh, But I'm also wondering, like, if she lived with Conway for a while, is it possible that it was just like she was over? She'd heard all of this bullshit before and she was kind of over Conway's bullshit by now. So she was just like, she's just not surprised at this point. But even that, there was no flicker of anything on her face. There wasn't even like an, oh yeah, I've heard that before. Like, oh, that's Conway for you. It was just, okay. Like, that was it. Like, staring off. It didn't feel like a natural reaction to me. Yeah. It felt like a very non- human reaction to our aunt thinks that you murdered our mother like to me if nothing else I'd be like oh Jesus Christ like it feels like it would be like that actually is exactly what you would do (laughs) right yeah oh Jesus Christ this oh okay this is what she's on now great well that's fun like you know what I mean some sarcasm something but I don't know I don't know. And listen, I know that you and I have gotten into a lot of conversations about what exactly that means, what exactly, you know, Conway is saying about Allie, Allie is saying about Conway, what maybe my kind of thought about the two of them and all of this is. And we're going to get to that after the break. So go refresh your drink, hit the loo, and we'll be right back with more Murder on Middle Beach, episodes three and four here on True Crime and Cocktails, famous Fatalities Edition. What's up, everybody? This is Lauren Ash, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. A couple of quick reminders. If you're looking for any of the visuals Christy mentions in this or any of our episodes of the podcast, make sure to follow us at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram. There she posts a case file with all the relevant visuals for each episode of the show. If that's not enough for you, you want a little bit more? Go to our website, truecrimeandcocktails.com. There, Christy posts extensive virtual case files. This is literally everything she finds in her research it's a treasure trove of deep dives and it's all there for your enjoyment also on the website you can find our full unedited zoom episodes of the show if you'd like to watch rather than listen and make sure to give us a follow on facebook at true crime and cocktails twitter at not detectives and the most important piece of information if you like the show please wherever you listen to it give us a nice rating go on to apple leave us a nice review i know it sounds like a silly cliche but the truth is it really goes a long way in this crazy podcast world and your support means the world to us but enough about all that get yourself another drink sit back and enjoy the rest of the show 
Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. We are, of course, talking about Murder on Middle Beach, Episodes 3 and 4. Before we get back into it, I have one thing to say, which is this. Christy, Christy, what was I thinking? Forgot to ask you, what are you drinking? It's my new theme song. I (laughs) never think that I could possibly love you more. And then things happen, and my God, you're I felt I had to sing in order to make up for my gaffe. I, it's not a gaff, and I will take your singing always. Awesome. I just, I was in a rush. Yeah. I was, things were, my brain was sea shantying, and my, the rest of me was like, where are my notes? Where is my highlighter? I'm going to print something out for this. So I'm like using a glue stick to like glue things on because I felt I needed to make it very visual. And then, so my drink kind of got pushed uh, to the back of my brain. But I'm just doing just a basic regular fresca with some cran cherry squeeze a lime little vodka yum yum give me some it's delightful it is so if i can it's refreshing it sounds nice you know well i've also wowed everybody over here and changed things into a diet dr pepper who knew it who knew Ooh. it? Uh, this is the last day in dry, dry January, last episode in dry January, because, of course, we are still recording this in January. And uh, listen, you know what? It's been a journey. And I do want to say <laughs> I have felt drunk most of these episodes. <laughs> the one thing I have learned <laughs> is that by the time we are done, I feel <laughs> crazy, unhinged. I feel intoxicated. Yeah. And that is a uh, kudos to uh, you and to us and to what we bring that it, it it's uh, it's my own natural high. There you go. I don't even need it. I don't even yeah. need a substance because I feel drunk. I'm drunk on love. I'm drunk on love. Oh, cue Beyonce. We're gonna have to do something special for Valentine's Day. We are where we just have an episode where we just talk about love. Well, we'd lose a lot of audience. <laughs> well, I gotta tell you a little something. Wait, yeah. Watch your mailbox. No, you what? did. We've been talking a lot about See? love. We've been talking a lot about Valentine's Day being not just about romantic love. And so, you know. Here's the thing. <laughs> I, and she said this at a point where I could try and get something to her on time. But I don't know if anybody's noticed. But the mail system is currently, one may say, struggling. <laughs> For example, I sent Lauren two packages in December, and she received them a month later. They told me, like, every time I went on to check the tracking, it was like, expected date of delivery, January 7th. January 19th, still in transit. So it was a real, a real bear. And I have not checked to see the whereabouts of your birthday gift. So I'm going to be sick about it if... uh, No, listen. You know, I just... We celebrate when we celebrate. But for those who are wondering, this episode is dropping February 2nd, and my birthday is February 4th, and I will take all well wishes you want to give me. So there you go. (laughs) Um, I believe in celebrating occasions. You know what I mean? we got to mark occasions in life. It's all we have, especially during our current, you know, state of affairs in the world. we got to mark the, the happiness, don't we? Oh, gosh. All right. So 
getting back into what we were talking about, we were talking, of course, about Conway and Allie. We were talking about the discrepancies in their uh, stories. Well, we hadn't gotten into that yet. That's the next thing on my list here. Uh, I guess what we were talking about was Allie's reaction to Conway claiming that she had something to do with her mother's death. Now, obviously, this is what's wild about this is that they were together. They were who found the body together. So it feels, yeah. it's it's interesting to me that, that, first of all, Conway is blaming Allie, but then also, Allie, did Allie kind of blame Conway back? I can't remember whether she did or didn't. Yeah. Nope. Allie just kind of said nothing. Allie was so deadpan, she was practically like a female Bob Newhart. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> deadpans like Bob You're Newhart. Dead right. He, what, what a he gift is. he has. But she just did not give any emotion, which again, I get that. I mean, her father doesn't really show emotion. So maybe it's just, a, it's another something that runs in the family. But she also, maybe this whole thing is bringing back a lot of stuff from her teenage years. And this is her way of just protecting herself is just, She's going to shut down, not let anything in, so she can just go live her life happily and move on. So there are discrepancies between Conway and Allie's stories. I thought first we should hit on what we know for sure. Okay, great. On March 3rd. Let's do it. So March 3rd, 2010, Conway picks Allie up from school and takes her to to her home at 44 Middle Beach Road. At 11.25 a.m., Conway calls 911 to report that she found her sister injured and hidden under patio cushions. Now, I did find a portion of the 911 call, and there will be a copy of it on the virtual case file on truecrimeandcocktails.com. Thank you very much. During the call, when the dispatcher starts to instruct Conway as to how to perform CPR, Conway says... I don't want to move her because I don't think it's a, a, I think it was not an accident. That feels like an odd leap in the moment. Like, it feels like it's like, I gotta say that this was a murder. Like, what? Well, yeah, I mean, if, if I found someone in their front yard under cushions, very bloodied, I would be like, well, this doesn't look right. But if, if 911 is like, here's what you can do to attempt to save their life, I would be like, okay, great. Yeah, I don't know. Let's do this. I'm not going to be like, oh, I shouldn't. <laughs> I'm not a professional. I didn't touch. <laughs> like, that's not, like, no, you you do what you need to do. Of course. And I think it's, in that you know, moment. most people, again, in those moments would, would just be in a full panic. Oh, my God, my sister has, is, you know, yes. dying, essentially, if not already dead, covered in these stab wounds. Like, I feel like anybody would be, you know, I, I think it's just, again, it's an odd reaction to be like, to, to be trying to be logical in that moment. I feel like most people would just be like hysterical, you know? Yeah. Okay, so the, we know that all of that is true. What else do we know is true? The ambulance arrived. Barbara was pronounced dead from blunt force trauma and sharp force injuries. So Conway's story... Conway was at her Aunt Jill, who we recall from the uh, gifting table debacle, if I may. She was at Aunt Jill's mother's house, helping her clean out her basement. She said Allie had to wake her mom to take her to school, 
and your mom took her to school in her pajamas, apparently. Which I felt that was a little strange to word it that way. So Conway says, Allie texted around 9 a.m. She couldn't get a hold of Barbara, so Conway went to pick her up around 10, 10.30. It had been said in the documentary that Allie just wasn't a fan of a school, and if she just wasn't feeling it, she'd just call her mom, and her mom would come pick her up and let her leave. Okay. Conway said the dog statue near the front door was knocked over, Barbara's purse and keys and coffee cup were scattered on the lawn, and when Conway tried to pick them up, Allie said, don't, it's a crime scene. To which she said, there was no blood, the purse hadn't been opened, it was full, nothing looked like a crime scene, so why would she say it's a crime scene? Because they hadn't found Barbara at this point, so why would you assume it's a crime scene? So Conway's belief is that Allie killed her mother and then just so casually walked to school. So Allie's story, she said, I was running late, so my mom drove me. We went to a coffee shop called Willoughby's first. I got a chai. It was good. And she brought me to school. That is such a robotic thing to say, like, We went to this place. I got this. I enjoyed it. And then we did this. It's like, okay. Like it to me, just listing it that way feels very, she's trying to remember the lines from her play. Yeah. It feels like she wants to remember her rehearsal. It feels like a robot trying to be human. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like she's trying to remember exactly what she said to the police so that it sounds the same. Well, here's the thing. Throughout the documentary... Allie's story does not stay the same. Oh. So, first of all, I do want to point out, she's running late. So late, in fact, that she has to wake her mother up to take her to school. And then it's like, you know what? I'm late. Let's go stop and get a coffee Yeah, that's weird. Now, this, because of where they lived, they were about a 10-minute drive from the school. Going to that coffee shop would have wouldn't have been the most out of the way that coffee shop by the way opens at 7 a.m i did verify that to make sure that it didn't open later and that she wasn't lying it's crazy to me like if my kid wakes me up and is like oh my god i'm late for school can you drive me i'm gonna be grumpy as hell about it because you don't wake this girl but yeah i'll drive you and then if if he has the audacity (laughs) to say Let's go get a coffee. I'm going to be like, fuck you. Let's go to school. Like, you're already late. I'm not going to reward you with a coffee. Which makes me just feel like, and I'm so sorry to say this, Allie. Not that Allie will ever hear this, but I think you spoiled. (laughs) You know, like, also the fact of like, anytime she just doesn't feel like being at school, her mom just picks her up and takes her home. That feels... And then it's like, I'm running late. Drive me. Oh, and then I need a drink. So go get me that. That feels like some parent guilt about the mental breakdown. That's what that feels like to me. That also could be. Yeah. I... Yes. Now I feel guilty for calling her spoiled, but... Eh, I'll take... I'll uh, still you're stand fine. by it. Okay. So... So then... So how else did her story change? I, I didn't pick up on this when I was watching. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. It changes between, like... They show her very, very briefly, I think, in like the first few minutes of episode one. And then they don't really show Allie at all until episode three. 
So there's a lot of time in between, but he only had so many opportunities to interview her because she was living out of the country at right. the time. So to me, this is one interview. It could have been over multiple days because who knows how long he was filming and all that kind sure. of stuff. But still, so she says they're running late. Her, She says, uh, mom brought me to school, told the school I was going to be late. Around 11 a.m., I'm at study center. I start texting mom, telling her I want to go home and I want her to come and get me. Mom doesn't answer, so she decides to call Conway. Now, episode one, three minutes in, Allie says her keys were in the door, but the door was locked. That was the first thing she noticed about the house when they got to the house. Conway says the keys were found lying scattered on the lawn. So I find that interesting that the keys, I get that that's not that big of a difference, but it's just, it's weird to me that the two people who arrived at the same time have two different kind of stories about that. So Allie says, we go inside and call her name. I go around the house, but I hear Conway screaming. Later, Allie says she went to the garage and Conway went around the house. So were you in the garage or were you in the house when Conway found the body? Because she's saying she was in two different places. Right. And who went around the house? Did Conway go around the house? And I assume she means around the outside of the house. But then when did you go to the garage? Because there's no way she could have gone to the garage and then gone inside, go all around the inside before Conway would have gone a single partial lap of the house and find the body. Because once you're outside, the body is very obvious in that spot. So if Conway was going around the house, she would have noticed it. So I just find it interesting that she's like, oh, we went inside, we were calling her name, I was going around the house, and then I hear Conway screaming. But then a later interview, she's like, I was in the garage, Conway went around the house, found the body. That's, yeah, that's bizarre. I have another question. Before you put that paper away, yes. you may want it. Let's <laughs> just talk about this timeline very quickly. Because we, yeah. we, as you were saying, let's focus on the facts. So one of the facts that we know is that they called 911 at 1134. Is that what you said? 1125. 1125. So yeah. Allie is suggesting, now maybe she, yeah. I mean, I guess people could argue like, I don't know, I, I was estimating, but like, by what you just read, she's suggesting that she called yeah. Conway at 11. Conway was was able to get to the house, sorry, get to the school, pick her up and get her to the house in 25 minutes? Because we know it's 10 minutes from the school well, to the house. So, I mean, I yes. guess that's possible, but I guess she just dropped everything? Like, this is just bizarre. Well, I also don't know where Jill's mother lives, so I don't know where Conway was coming from, but... Conway said that Allie started texting her around 9 a.m., which would have only been she arrived at school at 7.54. And there was another thing that we know is that the secretary did corroborate that she did show up at that time and that Barbara was with her, right? Well, we don't know if she actually went into the school or if she just called the school, but she did in some way speak with the secretary to say, yeah, she was late. Did she? I'm dropping did her she, off. Did the secretary speak to Barbara? 
Or did the secretary speak to Conway pretending to be Barbara? Because I'm gonna little, I'm gonna tip my hand right now. Mm-hmm. My theory, which yeah. is a little out there, is that Conway and Allie were in on this together. Because the more and more that I start to pick this thing apart, there are so many people that have so many motives, yeah. and there are so many people whose alibis are weird. Even if it's not the two yeah. of them, my I'll use them as an example. But I think in general, I'm wondering if people work together on this. If there was some sort of collusion, yeah. because it just feels like it's such a coincidence that all of these people would have all of these motives. It's just like that, that feels impossible. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are just like, what are the odds? Right. You know, because like, didn't you also tell me that Conway said she was helping in Aunt Jill's basement? But but like again, like, so was she in the basement mm-hmm. alone? Is there a separate door to the basement? Is that where she was thought to be but could have absolutely been somewhere else well at one point they go to a house that i do believe is the aunt's house or the aunt's mother's house uh in the documentary and you access it from outside so is it possible that she went upstairs and was like hey jill's mom i'm here i'm gonna go get working downstairs goes downstairs like opens doors moves a few things around and then sneaks out leaves yeah so so you really never know what i'm hearing is is that conway does not have an airtight alibi her alibi is no. being alone in a basement that has a door to the outside yeah i mean also is it possible i'm gonna go there is it possible yeah that barbara drove Allie to school that Allie could walk home, kill her mom, and walk back to school, and then start asking to be get picked up. I find it super interesting that they're saying, like, that Conway is saying Allie started texting Barbara at 9 a.m., whereas Allie was saying she texted her at 11 a.m. Yeah. Because Conway is saying she picked her up at 10, 10.30. Right. So that's almost closer. It's like they didn't get their stories exactly straight. And I mean, Allie would have been using a cell phone to text her mom. Right. Which is just a big old clock. Right. So, I mean, I get that she's not really paying attention or whatever, but based on like the class that you're in on that day, like shouldn't that help you know approximately what time it was based on your schedule? And it just feels like if they did this together... Is Conway, like, thinking if we blame each other, there's no way that they can do this. Whereas Allie just was like, I'm not going to do that. That's honestly what one of the next points I was going to make is that it's like hiding in plain sight, right? Yeah. I'm just going to go down a quick little scenario and then we'll move on. But think about this, okay? So Conway alluded in that journal that you mentioned that it's like oh Allie Allie wants to party and she doesn't you know she doesn't want me around whatever let's say for example who knows the two of them started to get into partying together that's possible in her teenage years they both kind of have whatever they're dealing with let's say also they could even be getting into who knows smoking meth doing whatever who knows they could be they could be (laughs) But I'm saying, like, who knows what they could be getting yeah. into? And then all of a sudden they start to have these conversations sure. where it's like, you know what? Your mother is is X, Y, Z. And she's like, yeah, you know what? We should kill her. They could have, in theory, killed her. Conway drove 
Barbara's car with Allie in it to school, called the secretary pretending to be her from her phone, right? They would have had access to all of this stuff. Now, am I suggesting yeah. that two people high on drugs could could pull off this murder? Yes, I am. I guess is the point. Do we have any proof that they've ever done drugs? No, we don't. Not at all. But I guess what I'm saying is, is that it just feels to me like it could have very easily, it could very easily be that they had did, done it together. Again, hiding in plain sight. They they created their own timelines. They created their own alibis. And and in in a sense, it would be you know, yeah, smart move. It's more than possible. Because look, Conway doesn't stop being suspect. Let's get into it. The autopsy says that um, the blunt force wounds potentially may be something like a hammer. Okay. Conway, in an interview where she was practically slurring, goes, who doesn't have a hammer? Without hammer even being brought up. It was Barbara was found and she's like, yeah. Who doesn't have a hammer? So then she says, for years, I carried a hammer under the car or under the seat in my car. Madison says, why a hammer? Conway says, because that's what I think killed Barbara. And I think I could hit with a hammer. I don't think I could stab with a knife. Jesus. Yeah. So is she saying that she did the... the hammering with the hammer and Allie did the stabbing with the knife is Allie literally so pissed and that's why she's so robotic that she's like what are you doing stop talking I mean listen I need to let it go that that's my main theory but my point being um that is an insane thing to say I carry a hammer everywhere because that's how I think my sister died and I feel like I could use one okay what else you got for me yeah um Conway also said, Allie looks too much like your mom. I have to look away. Is that guilt talking? <laughs> that she can't even look at Barbara's Could face? Be. Could be. I mean, and then it came down to like, could Allie possibly do it? The body was like, there was obviously a spot where there was all this blood. And then she would have been dragged across the lawn. So it's like, could a 16 year old girl drag a 160 pound woman? To which I say, Someone on fucking adrenaline can do pretty much anything. (laughs) So I don't feel like that's a, oof, yeah, she couldn't have done that. It's like, I don't know, when your heart's racing and you're just like, I've never killed someone, but like, (laughs) I realized that came across very like, well, when I did it, I had no problem. Uh, But like, when you're on adrenaline and you're just like in it, who knows what well, you're she also of. like you just said 160 ish pounds i mean that's not crazy it isn't like she, he was a you know yeah. 255 pound six foot four man that might be a little bit different you know what i mean like 160 yeah. pound woman that doesn't i would not automatically go oh that's impossible plus if it was two of them thank you very much yeah, yeah. uh we're just gonna keep on this train of what the fuck conway <laughs> So Conway had a storage unit in Florida where I believe she was living at the time. She could currently be living there. Um, She was living at the time of the documentary filming. So Madison goes to Florida to meet with Conway and help her look through this storage unit because she's like, I've got some stuff of your mother's. This is when we find out that 
Allie was the one that pushed Barbara to take Jeff to court for unpaid child support. Conway says that Barbara felt abandoned and that's why she filed for divorce. Conway's like, everyone thinks I'm crazy, which is again that whole like victim mentality that she seems to keep bringing back time and time again. Things found in said storage unit in a Rubbermaid tote in a small box they found, oh, you know, Barbara's ashes. That Conway didn't even realize she still had. Wow. Yeah. They also found Barbara's purse. You know, from the scene of the crime that the cops never took into uh, evidence at all. So wait, I'm so sorry. I I just have to pause really quickly. So she has all of the ashes? Uh, Apparently they, they, in 2010, or not 2010, at some point shortly after she died... The family uh, met somewhere and scattered the ashes of Barbara and their sister who had died a few months after Barbara. But apparently that wasn't all of the ashes because she found them in this storage unit, which I'm curious to know, that wasn't an accident. No. You kept those. Whether it was a guilt thing or what it was, I don't know. You kept those. I know. I like that when you when you get that suspicion hat, you're like, well, it's I'm stuck dog with a bone because this is where I'm it is. I love it. Well, and we're just going to keep. I mean, again, she has the purse from the scene. The question is, did she pick it up when the cops were there? Did she say, oh, this is mine? Great point. Why keep it? Did she claim that she picked it up because she didn't want to admit she actually had touched it to put it there to make it seem which wouldn't make sense to put it there and then pick it up. I don't know. The point is, I don't get why yeah. she I don't get why she has the no. purse to begin with. She also had papers from Barbara and Jeff's divorce where Barbara says that Jeff threatened her. Jeff thought his phones were being tapped and his mail was tampered with. The FBI had gone to the house looking for him. He had three different passports in three different names. Barbara said she had info that could be helpful and would be released in the event of her death. Well, as far as I know, nothing has been released, which is a tragedy because I'm dying to know what she felt she had. She said Jeff had offshore bank accounts in Switzerland and the Caymans and that he was being investigated for money laundering using an oil barge in the Middle East. And that's what... Madison asked him about right because there was a lot of a lot of papers that he went through and there was a lot of really incriminating kind of creepy things that he found and he just denied all of it right he was like well I'd have to see it I don't know I never did that I don't know and it's like "Mm, yeah okay I don't know whether I buy it Jeff well you shouldn't (laughs) (laughs) so he had multiple overseas deals That doesn't necessarily mean that he's a bad guy. Over the years, he borrowed money from a lot of people. He borrowed money from Barbara's parents and then paid them back. And then borrowed $125,000 from them. Said it was an investment for one of his new businesses and just never paid them back. Interesting. Yep. Between 1991 and 2000... Jeff was in some way linked to 14 different companies. 
not including Southern Electric, where he was the president from 89 to 91 and got fired and did the whole defamation suit against them. According to documents that I found about the creation of each company, Jeff's role ranged from at one point he was the secretary of women's news media, which I found fascinating. He was also sometimes labeled as the CEO and sometimes simply the registered agent, which is the person that your company appoints to receive all of the notices for your corporation and on their behalf. So most of these companies dissolved within the first two years. Most of the company's main addresses were listed as the Hamburg's main address when they were listing, when they were living in Georgia. So he used his home address as most of these businesses, and then they moved somewhere and he used that home address. Like he just kept using his own personal address for this. So between 91 and 95, he was part of the following corporations and just Tell me if you see a pattern like I saw okay. one. International Eagle Corporation. International Economics Consultants. International Energy Corporation. International Enterprises Corporation. International Environmental Corporation. You got nothing but IEC in you, Jeff. Like, <laughs> nothing. My favorite is International Eagle because you know he was like, ah, I want something that starts with an E. What do we got? Well, there's Eagle. Yeah, let's go Eagle. Patriots. We're Patriots. Think, like there, right? There is a company that he started called Anova Technologies. I could not find two places that said that they did the same thing. I found a place that said they they manufactured like styrofoam products. I found a place that said they were something to do with computer parts. I found another place that was like, they're like a mattress place, like a mattress manufacturer. So it was like nothing was ever the same, but this exact, like about this same company. He also had a comp, was part of a company called Rendezvous. And then one called Limo Night, which... I want to know what they do because that sounds like fun. Yeah. So there is a company, and I don't know how to pronounce this, so just roll with me. Uh, I be- I believe like it's Cleontia, Cleontia, something like that. Okay. Investments. They were a company whose main addresses and everything show that they were created in Cyprus. Pinnacle One is a group that was shown in the documentary that has ties to Cyprus banks. And links to money laundering. And Jeff was part of it. Now they showed this on the episode where we've got Pinnacle One, which was where Jeff was part of, which goes to Banks of Cyprus, which have had money laundering charges. Aston Rothbury Bank, which is owned and operated by a convicted money launderer. And it's also connected to Anchor Bank, which is part of like a Swiss bank account thing, which has been accused of money laundering. So I'm not saying that Ah. Jeff was part of money laundering. I'm just telling you all of the companies he just happened to get into that seem very much to be shell companies, if I may. Absolutely. And the fact that they were all the same initials 
it feels like it yeah. just feels obvious. Like it feels like he wasn't even trying to hide it. Yeah. That's so interesting. Okay. So he's borrowed all this money from Barbara's family. He's got all of this kind of yeah. shady business dealings going on. He never paid that money back. I guess also he could have paid, used that money to, I don't know, pay a hitman. I don't know whether we brought that up in the last yeah. episode or not, but I, uh, <laughs> again, who knows? Maybe he was in on it with Conway and Allie. Uh, now, I, <laughs> now I've got a three-way conspiracy. Oh, no. Who knows? But that is wild. And it's interesting to me, too, that, you know, Madison found all that paperwork. It's there in black and white. And Jeff just denies it. And it feels yeah. like that's his main. Yeah. He just approaches everything that way. Well, I mean, he did. Uh, he said that, oh, maybe it's a forgery. No one's ever produced those, which it just means you didn't realize she had them. Yeah. And you didn't know what else to say. Uh, he admitted that he tried to trade oil. He said that in Barbara's drunken stupor, she called the police and said I money laundered. She was vindictive. She claimed I abandoned you. Well, guess what, asshole? You did. Yeah. <laughs> because not only, like, they divorced when their kids were, like, early teens. And then he just never paid child support. And then... He drained over $100,000 from both of their trust accounts that were meant for education purposes. And he just stole it all. And it's been a court battle for him to try and pay it. And he's just dragged his heels about paying it. And to my knowledge, to this day, has not paid a thing. Allie has gone to the police and, like, had him charged with larceny when she found out he took from her Madison knew about it and let it go. He didn't want to press charges. And that's interesting, too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Also, overall, like, Jeff dodges any questions that Madison asks about his business past or Barbara's murder. Yes. And then, like, a true garbage human says, there is more, but I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. Je Jeff and said that, yeah. follows that with, I hope I helped. No, you don't. No, you don't. If you wanted to help, you would just tell him what he's asking. Jeff also said the quote, I didn't impact your life, which is the stupidest thing a parent can ever believe about themselves. It doesn't matter if you're there or you're not there. The fact that that kid knows that you're their parent you've impacted their life in some way so don't be like i didn't impact your life this isn't me it's like well, you, did. you did so both jeff and his sister marcia who is briefly briefly in one of the episodes uh tell madison on separate occasions you're just not going to figure this out marcia says you don't want to spend another 10 years going after something unknowable so everybody's like just drop it just let it go which is crazy um a curious thing of note uh one of jeff's excuses for not paying child support was that he didn't receive an actual paycheck from his job but instead they paid his bills for and for his apartment his apartment being on park avenue we discussed this uh in the last episode currently jeff's address is listed as a p.o box but it's the same zip code as that Park Avenue apartment. 
Oh. The current rent. Yeah. So it's possible he still lives there. But the current resident of that Park Avenue apartment? It's Jeff's sister, Marsha. No. So I guarantee, and that's pretty bold to guarantee something I don't know for sure, <laughs> but I'm feeling pretty hot about yeah, it, yeah, so yeah, I'm going to yeah. roll with it. Yes. I guarantee that company didn't pay for that apartment at all. Especially not if, if he doesn't work for the company anymore, which he does not. They would have been like, okay, great. Leave the place that we use for employees. And they wouldn't be like, well, you and your sister can live there now. But I mean, come on. Uh, Another curious thing of note, Jeff and his lawyer, a Mr. Hugh Keefe, say that Jeff was questioned by the police the day of Barbara's murder and immediately agreed to a DNA sample. But yet somehow, so like the, the incident occurred, I shouldn't say incident, the murder. The murder happened on a Wednesday. On the Friday, two days later, police held a press conference asking for the public's help in locating Jeff as they wanted to question him but had not yet found him. Oh, wow. So I don't know if I believe <laughs> that he talked to the police. Yeah, I don't think that that's true at all. Jeez. Yeah. I don't think you can trust it him at all. I'm also like, was stop. he doing something shady? Is he a spy? Is he working for some sort of, you know, covert operation or something? Did he kill the woman in that hotel room in a death in Oslo? Uh, you know, like... <laughs> Thank you for bringing it You're back. You're very welcome. I like that a lot. As soon as, as soon as you said spy, I was like, oh, Jennifer Fairgate. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, is he another spy? Yeah, yeah. You know, a, a, a friend of mine messaged me because she saw that we were going to be doing murder on Middle Beach today. And she was saying, she had said, which I thought was also an interesting thing, just very quickly to note. She was like, is it possible that, that, that he was doing some sort of illegal dealings or was, you know, doing something super shady and that somebody took out Barbara as like sending a message to him or was there a hit taken out on him, but then they accidentally killed Barbara. You know, I mean, again, I, I, of course, anything is possible in, in this wild, wild case, but uh, it's just so, it just feels so impossible that literally every player in this game is a possibility. Yeah. We could genuinely just spend like a two hour episode explaining like going through everybody in this story and just explaining why they could be a suspect yeah (laughs) like there's just there's something on everybody yeah which is just crazy to me so on the day that barbara died she and jeff were supposed to be in court to deal with his unpaid alimony and child support on that day jeff was to arrive with a substantial payment to put towards what he owed or else he was going to be incarcerated. Right. The appointment was set for 9.30, but obviously Barbara didn't show up. It was then revealed that Barbara was under the impression the court appointment had been moved to 2 p.m. So Barbara's friend Nancy spoke with Barbara around 10.30 p.m. the night before she died, and Barbara said to Nancy that her appointment the next day would be around 2 p.m., which is weird because apparently this sort of thing is normally dealt with in the morning. Right. 
So on the morning of March 3rd, Barbara took her alley to school. And when she was found, she was still wearing pajama bottoms, which makes you think she probably wasn't getting herself ready for court. Right. I mean, unless you're pajama pants bailiff, <laughs> you are not <laughs> going to have pajama always pants Always in pajama pants at court. <laughs> always. And sometimes while recording a podcast. <laughs> well, when she actually has pants on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say the last few times uh, I felt it's very hot in this room and the drinking makes it very hot. So I'm in a pajama short. But... And nobody tell my husband yeah. this. He listens, so he's going to hear this. So he's going to know he was right. We have hit the start of a brutal winter. So it's like a good, again, you're going to need to be my uh, translator for the Americans. Mm-hmm. But it it's a good like minus 33 wind chill outside right now. And so this room is very, very cold. And I came in before we were going to record. And I was like, ooh, that's... That's chilly. And he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get the heat going. I'll open the vent. I was like, by the time I get that vodka in me, I'm going to be so warm. I, on the break, I grabbed a hoodie and I've laid it across my lap like a blanket. Because you got chilled. It's freezing in here. It's well, freezing. Yeah, minus 33 <laughs> Celsius. At some point they meet. I think it's at yeah. minus 40 Minus 40 Fahrenheit and minus 40 Celsius are the same. It's very confusing. So anyway, the point is, is it's very fucking cold. Yes. Wow. Well, listen, keep those legs warm. I also love that I'm like, don't tell him. But I'm like, ah, he's just so sweet and uh, supportive that I know he's going to listen. So you were right. (laughs) You were right. (laughs) You were right, babe. I'm freezing. That's nice. That's nice. So, so there you go. I like that. You have it in recording for posterity's sake. You are right. And I also love that I now have a cat that's crying outside my door. And I'm just going to Well, if anybody's heard purring uh, in the last five minutes, it's because my cat is rubbing his face <laughs> on the microphone. If you are not watching the video, it is just, it's, and he's also very bitey these days. And I'm terrified that he'll do like a, he'll do like a rub, rub bite. And I'm really just trying to avoid that. So if I scream at any point, that's why. All right. So there was a discrepancy about the time in court. She clearly thought it was two o'clock as opposed to 930, which is odd again, as you were saying, because they're not normally done at that time. Uh, What, what's next on your list over there? Well, in the final episode, Like in the last two episodes, in three and four, Madison kind of leaves the whole like, could Allie possibly have done this? Who knows? And then in that final episode, he calls the high school secretary, Kara Heller, and she verifies Allie's alibi. She confirms that Allie was tardy and arrived at 7.54. Classes apparently start at 7.25, which feels like a nightmare. But um, Kara also confirmed that Allie had an early dismissal at 10.50 a.m. The drive from the school to the house is approximately 10 minutes. The 911 call was made at 11.25. So that time frame works out that she left at 11.50, gets home around 11. 10.50. Sorry, she she leaves the school at 10.50, gets home around 11, and then they spend like 20 minutes kind of like looking in the house garage then going outside and finding the body so okay i'll buy that 
Well, dear listeners, on HBO's website, they have a website set up specifically for murder on Middle Beach. And I'm just going to assume it's still going to be there at the time that you are going to be looking for it because I just found it. On January 14th of this year, they decided to add some extra things. There is a very detailed timeline of events, some events that they don't mention in the documentary, one of which I will bring up shortly because I can't believe nobody's screaming about it because I think it's insane. There's also a further, more detailed explanation about the gifting tables. There's a Hamburg family tree. And then they've added some bonus scenes. I'm listening. So one of the bonus scenes, I mean, one of them was just like, there was nothing to it, so I'm ignoring it. But one of them, Madison interviewed the secretary on camera on the show. He, it was just over the phone. On camera, she says, and I quote, I remember talking to your mom that morning. She called in to let me know that Allie was going to be going home and Conway was going to be picking her up. What? So this was my moment of like, what the fuck is going on? Because Allie is like, I want to get out of here. I want to leave. She claimed she was texting her mom constantly. Like, I want to go home. I want to go home. She wasn't responding to her. So she called Conway because she wanted someone to come take her home. And she was kind of desperate. So it's like, so then how did Barbara call the school to say, She's going to leave early. And yeah. Because she, she, was supposed, she was supposedly dead by this point. Well, this goes back to one so of I my theories. Get... That is, was it Conway pretending to be Barbara? Hi, this is Barbara. My sister Conway is oh. going to come get her. And that doesn't, I mean, whether that implicates Allie. Well, it does still implicate Allie because Allie's claiming that she, like, Allie didn't claim that that had happened. That's wild. That's a huge piece of information to leave out. Because again, that that secretary uh, yeah. has no horse in this race, right? Right. And also, to your point, she also wouldn't know probably the difference between their voices. Well, they're sisters. Especially when you add in, like, cell phone and that kind of thing, especially if she's using a cell phone outside, you're not going to hear it as clear. They wouldn't talk every day, so she wouldn't know exactly the voice. And yeah, we've had people comment to us that <laughs> listening to us, they're like, we, it takes us a minute to know which one's which. And so I'm just saying. I am certain that I could. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to sound terrible, but bear with me. I, I am certain wait. that I could call your children's <laughs> school and say I was you and they would be like, yep. Like, I, I'm certain. Like, our voices are similar enough. I don't think anyone would question it. Yeah. And I don't know if this was, I mean, this was 2010. Could they have had caller ID at that time? Who knows? But again, she could have had access to that cell phone. She could have absolutely had access to either Barbara's cell phone. If she had, if she had Barbara's purse, she would have had Barbara's, I believe Barbara's phone was in the purse. Okay, that's crazy. And then it feels like, is Madison leaving that out because it does implicate his sister? And then it becomes, 
what's going on, guys? Where were you, Madison? Then it becomes, now I start to question everything. Because here's the thing, to future documentarians listening this to this. <laughs> now you've broke my trust. Yeah. You break my trust, oh. you're done. <laughs> Right? I like that this is turning into a teachable moment for film school students. Listen, I hope it is. It it makes sense. I also find it wildly fascinating because you assume that maybe HBO was like, you know what? This is doing so well. People are constantly like asking us questions. Let's give them let's give them a little thrill. Give them some like deleted scenes. Why that scene in particular? Because that scene through me I want to know what are the how hard did the police look into Conway and Allie for example did they pull all those cell phone records like I mean I know in the last episode we got into the fact that the police were gallivanting you know having sex with prostitutes sex trafficking victims and starting their own wild hogs so I am not saying that maybe their their eye was on the game but, I mean, I have yeah. a lot of questions about how hard were they even looked into. Because the timeline being so messed up, Allie continually contradicting herself. Like, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. We're talking about a murder. Yeah. <laughs> another deleted yes, scene. Please. Or another bonus yes, scene is where Madison realizes... That the police thought of him as their main suspect at one point. So he gets into it. So the police told him our main suspect had their cell phone off for 24 hours around the time of the murder. Madison admits he got a, he found out about Barbara because he got a call from someone that Allie was trying to get a hold of him, but his phone was off. He admits that at the time of the murder, his phone was off and had been for most of the day. When police talked to Madison about DNA, they said that what they had found under Barbara's fingernails was, quote, male Hamburg lineage. Again, come on. We don't know if that's accurate because the police did end up admitting that the DNA kits had been expired. So we don't know how much DNA they actually got. But... They said, our number one suspect, the cell phone was turned off for 24 hours. We've got male Hamburg DNA. So then Madison is like, oh, Jesus, I was their number one suspect. And then it like cuts out, which is really heartbreaking because I wanted to see it. But then it's like, okay, so say they do have male Hamburg DNA. In the area that we know of, there's only Jeff and Madison but there's also Brian who the hell is Brian I'm glad you asked before Jeff and Barbara got married in 1989 Jeff was married to a woman named Kathleen and in 1979 they had a son named Brian what? There's another sibling? Yep. And it's not a weird case of like they don't know each other because if you go 
I don't suggest this. I did this because I'm a researcher and it's my job. But if you go on Brian's Facebook page, listed as his sibling, is Madison. Shut up. I'm in full goosebumps yeah. right now. That is, that well, is, what the fuck? I will say most of that was for the sake of dramatic effect. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> he, he does exist. It's just, he's a doctor. He lives in Ohio. And as to the best of my knowledge, he has zero motive in this. Because I think by this time, he had just moved on with his life. I feel like his dad's just a pile of shit. And maybe that's why him and Madison. But this is, you know kind what? Of, now you're going to love this. Yeah. As someone in the entertainment industry. <laughs> yeah. This is, this documentary is starting to fall apart for me. Because when uh-huh. he, because he, I remember there was a line in the documentary where it said it's DNA it's male Hamb- Hamburg descent, which again, I was like, what? But anyway, yeah. but that would be the time in the documentary that you disclose that there is another suspect, that there that could mean another suspect. And he could very easily yes. say, I have a half brother, Brian. He was, he has an airtight alibi. You don't even have to show a photo. Do you know what I mean? But like, to me, yeah. it's just, again, he's, he's lost my trust. And when you've lost my trust, now I'm like, now I feel like I can't trust anything you're saying, Madison, because it feels like you're really sculpting something for a reason that we don't understand yet. But leave, leaving sure. out that there is a third possible person, that's wild. And so irresponsible yeah, to I... me, in my opinion, that's an irresponsible move. It needed to be said. I assume that the brother was like, I want no part of this. I don't want anyone linking me to my jack-off father. I don't want any part of it, whatever. There was a part on Facebook where Madison was taking um, the documentary, like, before he had finished it. I think it was to some sort of festival or something. But he, this guy, Brian, shared it and was like, so proud of my brother. Hope he really gets this made someday. And while, spoiler alert, he did, and then you were never mentioned. So I'm guessing it, he didn't want to be mentioned, or if it was cut out, like, you could have, uh, like, I just feel like there has to be enough in there. They could have gone five or six episodes. But they were like, no, we're going to cut it to four for some reason. Unless they're planning. Maybe they didn't feel they had enough. Unless they're planning to release more, which is possible. Oh, after the stuff they found at the end, which we'll yeah. get into, I feel like they would have. But the big thing for me, I love that this is a different spot on my notes than what I was expecting. But this is the part that has had me screaming inside my heart for the last multiple weeks. Because normally I spend a week on a case and I move on. But this time, because it's the same case for two episodes, I've spent a good solid like two and a half weeks right. on this. And it's just, it's in my brain now, along with the sea shanties. So uh, HBO has this very detailed timeline. One of the events that stuck out to me said on March 1st, two days before the murder, Barbara's mailbox was reported as missing. Now that may seem like just a random 
okay, let it go, Christy. That's nothing. However, I've had to print a map and then it didn't clearly show things. So I've had to like cut and paste labels on it to help everybody. I will also put it on Instagram on the case file and it will be on uh, the virtual case file on truecrimecocktails.com. So this is such a poorly laid out neighborhood. I'm going to say it. So I don't know how well we can all see this. Oh, this Ooh, looks I'm great. Gonna to, I'm going to have to back it up a bit. Yeah, that's so, good. This road down here is Middle Beach Road. Okay. You're driving along. You got house number 46. Yep. You got house number 40. And then you have two very long driveways. One gets to 42. One gets to 44. Now, anybody seeing this can see that if you look at it, it goes 46, 42, 44, 40. Yes. That's really messed up. Yes. So from Middle Beach Road, you can't see 42 or 44. These little X's at the bottom are the locations of the mailbox. So if you take off a mailbox that has a house number on it, it's going to make an ambulance a, take a little extra time finding that house, don't you think? Wow. Because the only way to access this house, which is where the murder happened, is yeah. taking this super long road after you get to the correct mailbox. And also, wasn't there a moment where Allie was, was didn't Conway have a moment where it's like, where's Allie? In the, in the 911 call, and it's like, she's down the driveway getting ready to direct the ambulance? Yeah. I understand that it's a long driveway. She could have been doing that anyway, but doesn't it seem interesting that she knew that she needed to direct the ambulance? Without seeing the mailbox. Yeah. It's going to be difficult to get there. And you're right. She said that Allie had gone down to wave them in because they weren't going to find it because the house is so freaking hard to find and so set back from the road. So this little detail which seemed like nothing, has been eating me alive. So I have been searching for it everywhere. I looked into it. The only information I could find was an article that came out shortly after the murder where a neighbor was asked if he had seen anything out of the ordinary lately. And he said the only thing he saw near Barbara's house was, quote, a new mailbox being installed. So at this point, I'm screaming, when was that mailbox installed? Because these are those like fancy ass things. I love that that's fancy to me where it's like you've got the wood, you've got the the mailbox on top. Wouldn't you use something like, I don't know, a hammer to install something like that? Yes. Is it possible that somebody was putting, somebody took it down Maybe maybe it came down for whatever reason sure. and that was innocent and it got put back up and whoever put it back up, puts it up, goes to the house to talk to her about the payment of it. Something happens and she ends up dead. Great point. And they point. like cover her up and leave. Great point. There are, there were like 15 to 17 different companies that claimed they could install a mailbox in that tiny town. So I couldn't even begin to think. Could be anybody. Yeah. My other question is, did someone purposely take the mailbox and this got installed after the murder? So did someone take it thinking, I'll have extra time if somebody finds her 
the ambulance and the police won't be able to get to the house because they're going to struggle to find it for a moment. And then even buying themselves two to five minutes could be the difference between them getting caught and her, like an ambulance showing up and she's still breathing versus the ambulance gets there and she's no longer breathing. So they could have easily bought themselves time by getting rid of this mailbox. Yes. So I just want to know, when the fuck was it installed? I can't find anything. No one seems to care. And I'm screaming about a mailbox from the last week Ah. because it feels crazy to me. Like, what are the odds that two days before she ends up dead or the mailbox goes missing? What if somebody had like set this up with somebody else and was like, look, I'm going to pay you to take somebody out. But they worked in like codes or something. And it was like, they gave them the road and were like, look for the house without the mailbox. Totally. You know, like I just, just tell me, when did it get installed, Madison? When did it get installed? I know he might not know, but it's a weird thing because I don't think they mentioned it on the documentary at all. I don't remember anything about that. So why was it put in that timeline? The timeline also, in case you're not feeling like going to HBO.com, it will be on truecrimeandcocktails.com in the virtual case file. Very nice. The extra scenes, if they are still on their website, you'll want to check them out. But again, I put as much of that info that I could on our website. Now, listen, you just made the penny drop. I hadn't thought about this at all. I got to take us on a left-hand turn very quickly. Please. I don't know if you have any up-close photos of this or not, and maybe you can debunk this as soon as I say it. But I just was thinking as you were talking about this. Mm -hmm. She was found with the the patio cushions covering her. Yeah. But she, where was the patio in relation to where her body was found? Apparently, when it was summertime, she... The area she was found in is the area where she would have her patio furniture set up. However, this was March, and so it was freezing cold. So all of the patio furniture and cushions would have been in the garage. So let me get this straight. Somebody kills her and then goes, I need something to cover the body. And just happens to know that there's going to be a garage full of patio furniture with cushions? Did they go to the trouble? Like, what kind of cushions were they? Because traditionally, a lot of patio cushions have the little ties, right? That they it ties sure. to your chair, yeah. right? Did they have to untie them? Like, what was that amount of time like? It just, to me, feels again like that's that's a sign pointing to whoever committed this crime knew her and knew the house. It very well could be. Also, doesn't it also seem interesting that one of Allie's stories was she went to the garage? Did she go to the garage to get the patio cushions to cover her mom before the police got there? Is she mixing up the real story with the story they had concocted? I mean, I mean, I don't have a picture to show you here, but I do on the episode there were they did like a little like here's a picture of the house and then they did like a drawing over top to show you like where certain things were found. I will be posting those on Instagram and on our virtual case file on our website to go from the cars parked or the house is here. Her body's found here. They would have had to go all the way over the complete opposite side of the house to get to the garage and then all the way back. This is somebody that has to know them. 
Period. It, it has to be. Because you would it, think so. It can't, like, that's such a random, there is, I just don't buy that a stranger would have miraculously known, I've killed this woman on, say, the east side of her house. Now I'm going to go all the way around to the west side, into the garage, looking for something to cover her with, and then I'm going to take these patio cushions and use use those? Why would he even yeah. cover the, he, he or she, why would they cover the body at all? Because isn't there also something, now I'm getting back into my, psycho, my, my psychology stuff, isn't there yeah. also something, and I think I know this from SVU, where if somebody, if you kill somebody that you know, there is a want to cover the body, there is a want to like, to like, they don't, that you don't want to leave them exposed, that there is a caretaking element. I, I remember something about this, that it's like, you know, if it's a random, terrible, obviously murder sure then quite often the body will just be left for some killers yeah. you know the really sick serial killers all i mean all, all killers but but the serial killers they'll pose the bodies they'll have them you know they got nothing to hide in fact they they want to brag they want to have their their kill yeah. laid out why was the body covered and again with something that was so far away that only people who had knowledge of that house would know about not to mention, like, just curious, like, was the garage door unlocked? Did you have to go in her car to get the thing, the button to open the door? Or did you have to get her keys to unlock the door or anything? Like, there's just a lot of questions. It's interesting about to it. me. Yes, exactly. Was the, was the car in the garage? Was the garage door open? It's just very interesting to me. That she's like, I was in the garage. Also, at the house, and there are photos from a newspaper clipping, at the house there were wooden pallets that had been leaning up against the house. I believe more closer on like the garage side. And the killer, like, they had killed Barbara in one spot in the yard and then dragged her over beside the house to obviously not make it as obvious that she's laying there. And they left a huge, huge thing of blood on the lawn. So they went and grabbed one of those pallets and threw it on top and left it on top of the blood so you wouldn't see it right away until you moved it. But there were multiple pallets. So my question is, if they moved one over to put it on the blood, why wouldn't they have just gone back to where they had knew there were pallets already, grabbed another one or two, taken them to the other side of the house and leaned them over on that side of the house over her body covering her that way why specifically did they use the patio furniture i think that there's really something with the patio cushions i really do yeah. and it's weird to me that that i mean and i listen maybe the the police detectives have thought of that as well but th that just hit me when you were talking about the mailbox that i was like it would have to be somebody who has knowledge that they had those in the garage because otherwise, you mean to tell me a random person's going in there going like, what do I do? Thank God these are here. Like, it's like, that's just like, that feels impossible. And you're right. If they were outside, the murder was done outside. They saw the pallets. They covered the blood with the pallet. Why wouldn't they take the other pallets and use those? There is no reason yeah. to go in that garage and get those p cushions. But then the fact, again, that Allie mentioned in one of those statements that she had been in the garage. I mean. Yeah. There's, I mean, this. This does not stop giving. I mean, at one point, 
Madison works with Yale law students to try and get access to the police files regarding his mother's case because he's like, you know what? This is a cold case, public record. I want to see these things. They had a hearing in February of 2020 with the Freedom of Information Commission. The detective on the case was like, oh, well, it's not a cold case. What are you talking about? We had a new info last week. No, you didn't. No. It was just his bullshit way of trying to not have this taken from him. Right. And not to find out that they'd botched it. And then this was where we found out that the DNA kits had been expired. And this is where the police found out that Madison had been recording them every time they had an interview together. And what a joke. I thought that when they were like, how did you record them? And he was like, oh, just on my phone. I felt like such a, such an idiot because every time he went in to see them, he always had like a pen very specifically tucked behind his ear. (laughs) My spy brain was like, well, obviously it's a recording device. How clever. (laughs) Hey, maybe it was. And they just didn't use that footage or audio. Like, I truly thought that's what it was because I'm like, who just has a pen behind their ear? I'm like, I see you, Madison. I see what you're doing. (laughs) And then it turns out, no, just just a phone in his pocket. What an idiot. So the police claim they have been close to solving this case since March 7th, 2010, which is four days after the murder happened, but obviously not. Yeah. So then in August, the commission ruled in Madison's favor And October 19th, he was officially granted access to the files. He received over 1,600 documents. Wow. Which is crazy. So you can't tell me that they're not going to do more once he fully looks into what's going on here. So I can't wait to find out more because, you know, she she almost made it. She almost made it four hours. (laughs) Here it comes. I, I, We've all I been waiting for it. Mm-hmm. Go, go ahead. <laughs> I don't hate looking at his face. <laughs> there she I, is. <laughs> I have lasted four hours talking about this guy without mentioning that he's attractive. Is it a point? No. Is it a Blanche? Yes. <laughs> But I will say this. I knew he was hot, but I knew I've got to do my due diligence. Sorry, she's been drinking. Mm-hmm. And I I needed to focus on the case. Forget about the face. <laughs> and... And you were the bigger person. Look how professional you were. Good for you. I have done my best. I mean, I am in a few minutes going to label him as a suspect, but that's not the point. <laughs> I mean, in my notes, it does say, say that I'm like, I'm, I don't think it's him. But still, I mean... So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I, you did I, very I, good. I, I almost made it. You did really well. You did really good. Well, listen, we got to wrap this up. You knew where I was going. 
Of course I did. I was, I've been shocked. Yeah. I've been waiting for it to come. I'm like, when is she going to make this comment? And there you go. I, I knew it was only a matter yeah. of time. And I wanted to let you get there on your own. I was like, she's on a journey. She's trying to be a pro. She's trying to not bring it in there. And I'm not going to derail her. I'm not going to bring it up. Why would I? And you did me proud. Oh. All right. We got to wrap this up. Every episode this yeah. season is just getting longer than the one before. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, dear listeners, you seem to be enjoying it. So, so. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> we're in it now. Um, yeah. All right. So what are our final theories here? Anything else you need to add, hit on, uh, want to comment about? Well, let's just get right into theories. Things will come out as they go. Yep. Mask, the masked figure. As mentioned in the previous episode, the day before she was murdered, Barbara and a friend allegedly saw a man in a ski mask walk through Barbara's yard. They did not call the police. The question is... Was the person in the ski mask doing some sort of trial run? Their house backed onto a golf course. Is it possible that they came that route and they were walking just to give themselves an idea on time to how long it would take them to get from somewhere to the house? Possibly, I don't know, from the school to the house, if you want to believe it was Allie. I don't know. I'm just saying, who knows? We don't even know if this mask figure was real or not. It's we're going based on one person's opinion, one person saying something because, as far as we know, Barbara never said anything to anybody else about it. Also, does Jeff own a ski mask? Just saying. Oh, he'd have to in a Connecticut winter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. My other point about the masked figure: nothing seems like it was taken from Barbara's house. Like her computer, she had like printed out documents and stuff everywhere. Her phone, all of that. Nothing seemed like it was taken. It did not even seem like the killer entered the house or that they right. noticed. So right. it feels like the crime was specifically the murder. They weren't like she didn't show up while they were trying to take something from her. Or right. they didn't make it look random by going and stealing stuff while they were there. Uh, so another idea is, could it be someone from the gifting tables? But again, nothing was taken. There were documents on her computer that helped the IRS arrest these women. So you would think they would take any evidence, but it's possible that whoever it was was just angry that they didn't get their money. Barbara was in position to receive again. I mean, it's possible that they just did this out of pure anger, but again, it did really do wonders for the IRS and their case against them and get these women put in jail, which I will point out also about these women going to jail. The episodes made it seem like these women got arrested and then just went to jail and then got out and everything was fine. Oh, they got arrested and they went to jail and then they got out on appeal and then they were out for like a few months and then, oh, guess what? They got put back in jail again. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they did get out and then they got back in and then they got out officially in the end. And who was the, the video that you sent me where she was? Oh, that's Jill. Good old Auntie Jill. In the, in the episode, you may or may not have noticed, and I know there are some of our listeners who are quite the Hawkeye at noticing yes, different things. Of course. Jill, when giving her, like when talking to Madison, she's like, she, when she says no, she's shaking her head yes. 
Yeah. And then when she's saying yes, she's shaking her head no. That's the kind of body language you can't stop yourself. It's just a natural thing. So when you shake your head no, when you're saying yes, your body is like, bitch, you're lying. I yes. Mean, <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly how body talk. I think that's it how is. my body talks. Well, yeah. listen, and we looked it up too, and there was like, you know, top ex-CIA people were like, one of the easiest ways to tell that someone's lying is that they say yes mm-hmm. while shaking their head no, or they say no while nodding. And she yeah, did that. When she it's was subconscious. Right. And she did that when she was at she was asked if she had anything to do with Barbara's murder. And she was like, no, as she nodded. Yeah. And then it was also something about the gifting tables are totally legal. And she was shaking her head. No. And yeah. we know that they were, of course, illegal. So that feels yes. like it could have been a tell of hers. So then Correct. we can throw that into the mix, too. We haven't even thought about how she could have been involved. Think about that yeah. for a very quick second. Conway, her alibi was Jill. Right. Well, Jill's, mom. Jill's mother. But Jill yeah. was involved in Conway's alibi, right? That the, uh, connects well, her the, in some way. The thing about Jill's alibi is Jill and her husband had decided that they were going to go visit, I believe, her husband's sister, which is Barbara's mother, right, on a farm out of town. And they were like, you know what? We need to get on the road. We need to beat all the traffic. Let's get on the road at 4 a.m. On a Wednesday, which felt weird to me. And then they were like, Kate, let's go. And so she was like, yeah, I was in the car. So if they want to know where I was, they can check my uh, my speed pass or whatever. And it's like, it just seems very convenient that that's the specific day yeah. she chose to go. It just makes you wonder, like, were, how many people were involved in this? Is there going to be, like, a clown car full of people that conspired to get this done? Is I she going to have to do possible. an episode that's like, oh my God. Well, so it was all of them. Like, is everybody pay, playing some sort of role? Although I can't, I mean, I could see Jill just being mad about whatever was going down. And she thought that Barbara was going to be what took them down. And it's like, well, she was because she was killed and her information came out. Right. This does um, feel like it could be the end of my favorite movie, Clue. Uh, they all did. No. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, one of the one of the endings to Clue. All right, so who else we got here? Obviously, there's Conway. Oh, Conway. Yeah, she is and was a complete mess. Totally. During multiple interviews, she seemed like she was drunk. There was that time that he called that she was on the phone with him, and she was like, "Don't fucking ignore me." Yep. Um, it also seems like she just really like depends on him. A lot, and I don't know if it's guilt over her mother or not. She just feels like she's carrying a lot of guilt around. I don't know if it's because she <laughs> wanted her sister dead and got a hit, tried to hire a hitman and then it didn't work out. She said she can't stand the look of Allie because she looks so much like Barbara. Uh, her alibi is helping out Jill's mother and she, the ex entrance to that basement was out an exterior door so it's more than possible she could have said she was in there but didn't actually go in there yeah she is she it's also possible is she just a mess because she found the body 18 stab wounds blunt force trauma the blood everywhere i can't even begin to imagine how horrifying that must be so it's possible that seeing that has just like mentally broken her but also the stories 
of Conway and Allie not being consistent are weird to me. One other thing is after Barbara was killed, Conway became Allie's legal guardian. Which is crazy to me because she had a father. Yeah. But again, from my understanding, she lived with him for a few years, moved in with Barbara, and just cut him out and never spoke with him again. Well, it's wild that Conway went from being her guardian to accusing her of killing her mother. Like, what happened over the course of those 10 years? Yeah. I find it wild that they went from, they were living together and... Allie was like, I want her out. I don't want her here. I can't stand her. Get Conway going. And then it turned into, well, your mother is dead. I guess I'm going to become your legal guardian. And it's like, there were multiple aunts and uncles. Even if her father wasn't going to step in, there was also her mother's mother. What about her grandparents? Yeah, that's She was 16 years old. They could have taken her in. So I find it interesting that of all of them, that Conway was the one that stepped up. Yeah. Or that Allie was like, yeah, let's do that. And it's like, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So another idea is Allie. Was she jealous of the relationship between Madison and Barbara? Because they apparently were very close. There was a time in the documentary where the family was together. They're watching old movies and Allie is watching and she says, Oh, there's Madison stealing the show as always, which felt very like pointed, miffed, miffed sister, miffed sibling. And I get it. (laughs) I get it. She was angry at her mom. I'm not suggesting borderline personality disorder had anything to do with it. She, it could have, like she supposedly was diagnosed with it, but we don't know if she was just angry because teenagers emotions are unsettling (laughs) they they feel the most extreme things highs and lows so i can imagine an argument between them on a good day but like also Allie's story is inconsistent if she's already late for school why are you stopping for coffee on the way why the fuck is barbara agreeing to this again is it guilt because she let her go live with Jeff for years and she was mentally tortured there. Who knows? Could she brutally murder her own mother and then just go to school like it was no problem? I don't know. She can be accused of murder and it just bounces off her like nothing. So it's possible. But also, again, is she like that and robotic? Because she's just mentally checked out at this point. Could be. Um, Then it's Madison. He was on his phone was off the entire time. Is that something? But also, you'd have to be a certain level of sociopath to make a full documentary over a thousand hours filmed to be like, so who did this? And inside, he's giggling the whole time being like, bitches, it's me. Like, I, don't, <laughs> I don't believe it's him at all. He was like four, a 14-hour car ride away. Is it possible he could have driven there, killed her, drove back and was like yeah my phone was off whatever sure that's possible i just don't believe it if it comes out being him i'm gonna be shocked well he broke my trust so we'll see oh well and you know if they hurt you i cut them yep it's not looking good yeah all right final final one 
the full narcissist himself, Jeffrey Hamburg. Of course. He has the most motive for killing her. Yes. He was in financial trouble. They'd battled in years for court, which I'm sure was very costly. He had a different lawyer for everything. He had the criminal lawyer and the divorce lawyer and a tax lawyer and a... It was insane. Oh. <laughs> That's a first. We've never had that happen before. Wow. That was a, a little bit of a cartoon drunk chipmunk. <laughs> it did feel very cartoony. Wow. Wowzer. I am so sorry. It was just so perfectly right into the mic. It was adorable, but also hilarious. <laughs> are, are we cutting that part out? I never know anymore. Probably not. Yep, there it is. I, I think we can all agree Jeff is a full narcissist, right? Totally, yes. He requires constant admiration. He exaggerates his achievements. He takes advantage of others. He belittles other people that he thinks are inferior he is easily slighted. Like, there are so many things he's done. Like, the moment where I full laughed out loud, which I don't think you're supposed to do in a murder documentary. No. Uh, when Madison is talking to him in the car about money laundering, they're driving around New York. And at one point, Jeff was like, I don't want to hear it anymore. He undoes his seatbelt and he's just going to like tuck and roll and open the door and get out of the car. He's like, I'll just get out now. It's fine. And it made me laugh so hard that he was like, nope, I got to get up. Ah, nope, I can't hear it. And it's like, oh, that's guilt, man. Yeah. Like when he's like, oh, did you do this? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just going to get out into traffic. Yeah. It made me laugh so hard that he was willing to do that. Um, also, Barbara being told a different court time gives Jeff the perfect alibi. Yep. However, say Jeff's waiting at the house. There was a coffee cup found on the ground. It's possible it's from that Willoughby's stop that her and Allie made, right? Right. So he's waiting at the house because he knows she's going to be there. She pulls in. She sees him. They have an argument. He kills her. He would have time. If he killed her, if he was there at eight, he kills her, moves her around, covers the blood spot. He could even go in the house. And take a shower if he wanted, because it didn't seem like the police even bothered to check. And then get to the courthouse, because the courthouse was like about 30 minutes away. And he could... So assuming he did it like right when she got home after dropping Allie off, when Allie walked in the door at 7.54, if she had already left and was all the way back home, she could have been home between 8 and 5 after. If she was killed shortly after that, he'd have time to clean up, and get all the way to the courthouse and be sitting there like, weird, I wonder where she is. Absolutely. And then it's like, oh, she was murdered at the exact time I was here? That's weird. There's something to me, like that mailbox has been screaming at me. But also, since day one on this, the idea that she was told a different court time is such a, that way we know where she's going to be at what time. Yeah. And then it gives Jeff that alibi. So I think there is absolutely something to that. And I don't know if he killed her himself, but that dude, that Jeff is involved somehow. He has to be. 
He's shady as hell. Well, and again, his alibi doesn't really hold up if his alibi was just that he was at court because, to your point, there was enough time to do the deed and then get to court. So unless he has proof of where he was at 8 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, our longest episode yet, Christy Oxborough, you bring the goods every time. This one, I, I got to commend you. Thank you so much. I know what a bear this was to research, and this was pushed for by me. But also, we did, have, of course, have, have many listeners suggest this one, and I so appreciate yeah. the work that you did. Um, and listen, we have a very special announcement. This episode is going to be dropping February 2nd, which means that at this point in the world, our Patreon is going to exist. Because February 1st, we are dropping a Patreon because if two and a half hours of content a week (laughs) is not enough for you, guess what, Buttercups? There's more coming. We are Mm -hmm. going to have Mm -hmm. bonus episodes that are going to literally be called Last Call, where we just keep the camera rolling after we record and (laughs) you get to see the chaos that ensues. We're going to have other bonus episodes where we have special guests join us. We are going to have Q&As that you can join. We're going to have all kinds of things So please keep an eye out for that because so many of you have reached out and said that you very lovingly would like more content and we're very happy to oblige. So keep an eye out for that. Make sure you're following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those good things. Uh, Again, if you want to see the virtual case files, make sure you go to truecrimeandcocktails.com. And we got a tease next week. Christy, the next famous fatality case we're going to tackle is, of course, we're going with Tupac. That's Tupac Shakur, baby. We'll see you next week. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.